what episode is this? Uh, 65, huh? Wow. We're moving right along. Episode 65 of the Sports Psych MDs podcast. 65. Here we go, man. Yeah. Slowest City wins the race. Um, we're moving right along, you know, like the, yep. the tortoise and the hare. We wanted to get one last episode out in this kind of dead period before the football season starts. That's right. We got college football just underway and NFL starting here in a couple of weeks. And uh, we're definitely very excited about that. So but excited. Today, something that's close to, I guess, my heart. Um, because it was close to my proximity, we're going to talk about the Malice of the Palace documentary just dropped on Netflix. So go check it out if you if you don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, man, Malice at the Palace. Um, I, most people are not going to know what we're talking about. I, I just I have a feeling. So we should probably just go ahead and and put it out there. Um, pretty much, I think widely considered to be probably the most notable. I guess you would call confrontation between player and fan uh in sports history in this in the united states because we all know that well south america they get pretty wild yeah no doubt yes soccer yeah yeah soccer gets crazy people running on the on the field you know pretty much every every game but no that that's not we we definitely don't have that type of precedent really with any sport here in the in the u.s i mean like when you when you even think about like sports and like brawls, the thing that comes to mind for me is like hockey. You know, you see like that type of thing just kind of acceptable or whatever on the on the ice, two guys kind of duking it out. But like that's just not something you really see, you know, even in football, which is like a pure like, you know, collision contact kind of kind of sport, you rarely you rarely see like just all out, yeah. you know, just fighting and things At like that. At most in the NBA, you'll see like an exchange of a single punch here or there, like the Chris Paul and Rajon Rondo from a few years back, but yeah, it never goes beyond that, right? So, and this went well beyond it. And well beyond it. I mean, yeah, I mean, literally like for those of you who have not seen this before, I mean, if you can imagine, it's hard to imagine, the entire arena was it what they refer to as a, was a, was a, was a melee right it was just a total total chaos total disarray players in um, the stands players fans in the stands. on the court right. very limited uh no very police. Little police yeah which is right uh, like no like security forces uh, to speak of to like really like kind of you know calm things down there was no like no one over the loudspeaker when I could tell, like saying anything, you know, it was just well, like this, this past season, didn't um, Russell Westbrook got some uh, popcorn or beer spilled on him when he was leaving a game. And it's like that times a million. And so this involved Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons, two of the best teams in the NBA at the time. This is 2004, 2005 season. The previous season, the Pacers were the one seed Pistons ended up beating them in the Eastern Conference Finals and then ended up winning the championship, beating the Lakers um, that had that put together that that old team, like kind of reminds me of this year's upcoming Lakers team with Carl Malone and Gary Payton. Um, but we'll, we'll save that for another episode. So anyways, they meet. Well, that's very profound, right? Because uh, by most people's accounts, like any team that would have come out of the East that year would have gone on to win the championship. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, you know, so Indiana felt like that year that they lost to Detroit in East Crawford's finals, like that, that was when they let slip away. Oh yeah. So they were coming back with vengeance and this was, this happened, I think it was the eighth game of the season in Detroit, Indiana's coming to town and it was a rough series the previous year in the playoffs in the Eastern conference finals. 
Um, right. So you knew it was going to be a hostile crowd. And um, the palace and Auburn Hills, that gets down. It was controversial, too. It was controversial. It was a tough, hard-fought series, came down to the wire. But it was controversial because Ron Artest, uh, who happened to be a member of the Indiana Pacers at this point, you know, that was mm -hmm. his first year um, after being traded you know, from Chicago. And, uh, and he made a really, really bonehead play. Um, I think he would even agree to that towards the end of the game where you know, he basically, what is it, flagrant foul call? Right against him. Yeah, got his elbow high up on Rip Hamilton, and that was a tie game with like 40 seconds left, and that pretty much cost them the game. So just to set the stage, and then we'll get hit the music and get going into this. This, and we already a little bit touched on. It. There's so many different personalities involved in this. We got are we already talked about Ron Artest? We'll get to the others. Um, the Pacers team. This was a extremely well constructed team. Like we said, this was a team that if the Pistons didn't beat them, they would have beat the Lakers and won the, won the NBA title. And they, they were coming back with vengeance this next year, not to mention Re Reggie Miller, Jermaine O'Neal at that point had, was a perennial all-star. And they added another piece, right? And then Mr. Yeah, Steven Jackson. Mr. Steven Jackson, who had already won a title with the Spurs. So he's coming in and you know his attitude. Um, he was part of the We Believe. Uh, yeah, Warriors team. Golden State Warriors, yeah. So... So yeah, a lot of team dynamics that we're going to talk about in this episode. And then we're going to touch on obviously these different personalities and, and maybe what led to this big of a reaction from the, the, the players. Um, and also that, that line, that boundary between players and fans and how it all went away in kind of almost like an instant. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, when something like this happens, it almost kind of forces you to take a, a good, long, hard look at, you know, what, what happened there, you know, like how, how that could have possibly transpired. It can never happen again. And fortunately, you know, it never, nothing like that has, has happened since. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it is important to, to kind of talk through that, you know, kind of sort that out uh, and, you know, to our fan base, you know, kind of give our take on, you know, sort of what, what transpired there, what could have maybe have been done differently to have maybe prevented that from happening. Absolutely. And then a the couple other things we'll probably touch on is there was a huge media response to this and there, there may have been some um, racial undertones to certain coverages of this. Um, so we'll touch on that along with obviously resilience. A lot of these individuals who are part of this, it, if, for those of you who don't know, people were suspended for entire seasons. Um, but there was some bouncing back and there was some uh, some redemption. So let's go ahead and hit the music and get into it. Indeed. Let's go. Let's talk about this Indiana Pacers team real quick because they, like we said, they're one of the favorites to win it all this season coming into the 2004-2005 season. And they have Jermaine O'Neal. Let's give a little backstory on J.O. real quick. Straight out of high school in 1996, Portland Trailblazers, 17th pick overall. And he's someone who didn't really come out until like a couple years into a season, didn't really show that he was going to be the guy he ended up being. So 
the Pacers who were already kind of contenders. If you guys don't remember, they did make it to the uh, NBA finals against the Lakers. I think in, was it 2001, 2002, somewhere around there? It was 2000. I think it was 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they went in after that, they had decided, Hey, let's just go into a re- rebuild mode. And so they changed, they traded um, Dale Davis, one of their twin towers for Jermaine O'Neal. And that was, that was actually in, that would have been in 2000. So I guess they made the, the, the finals would have been in 2000. So they traded him right after that. And Reggie Miller at the time, their alpha, everyone knows Reggie Miller, especially us here out at UCLA. We know him as the guy that took on Madison Square Garden and led the Pacers to the finals. He thought the team was rebuilding, but lo and behold, Jermaine O'Neal ended up being a stud, um, became most improved player that first year. And immediately they were kind of back in the mix when it comes to contending for a title. And so Donnie Walsh, their GM, saw this and they started making more moves. They brought in Ron Artest. And then that's when they ended up having the one seed. But then the Pistons got him in 2004 Eastern Conference Finals. So they said, hey, we need to bring in one more piece. So that's when they brought in Steven Jackson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now the stage is set. Stage, stage was set. You know, Reggie had his, his guys, you know. Um, Reggie had... So young studs, um, you know, guys that, you know, could do a lot of things that he couldn't do. You know, they were hard-nosed defenders. They could rebound the ball. They could kind of dictate, you know, the tone and pace of the game. Like they had this in-your-face physicality. Yeah, I mean, you know, Reggie was not a ball handler. I mean, he was a great shooter. He wasn't really like One a big-time like playmaker kind of guy. So, you know, he he was a guy that really needed the game to kind of come to him, you know, in way in certain ways. And he needed guys that could kind of be physical and and help him get to his spots, help him get open. And, you know, these were some big physical guys, you know, and, and uh, Steven Jackson and Ron Artest, you know, they could play in the, around the perimeter. Um, but they're, you know, really big, big guys, mm-hmm. you know, much bigger than your, your you know, average point guards and shooting guards at the time. Uh, and then Jermaine O'Neal was an interesting player because he was almost kind of like one of your kind of early, you know, not, I wouldn't say point forward kind of player. I don't know if he was necessarily that skilled, but he he had a mid-range game. Some of that kind of promise because of the fact that he could stretch the floor and because of the fact that uh, you could run the offense through him. You know, he had enough uh, ability to kind of see the floor, um, you know, decent passing ability was a you know pretty reliable score rebounder around the rim disruptor kind of player that you know I think him and and you know Reggie kind of developed a little bit of a you know two man game you know inside out threat you know they just these guys just had really the the full package at this point in a team that really I think could play well with Reggie Miller's particular skill set mm-hmm. yeah and this type this is a type of team that was built for the playoffs too because they get down and dirty they Ron Artest is someone who, when he was in his prime, this is before he ended up winning a championship with the Lakers. He was, he would, I think, one of the best defenders in the league, if, if not the best defender in the league at that time. And he was a reliable scorer as well. Maybe not the best shooter, but he could rebound the ball. He could finish at the rim and he could guard your best player. And he could fly off the handle at any mo- given moment, which ultimately, is one of the reasons why it cost his team the, the Eastern Conference Finals in 2004. Similar in a lot of ways of 
Draymond Green to a certain extent. Definitely. Um, it's a good analogy. Yeah. yeah. And then so here they are. They, they just came off a, a brutal loss where they had the best record in the NBA the next season. And Reggie Miller, and they talk about this in the documentary, he had difficult time connecting with Ron Artest. He had a difficult time trying to motivate him, get him to connect in with the team because Ron Artest was essentially, he was trying to retire after the 2004 season. He said he wanted to retire. He was asking for time off. He was making a rap album. And he mentions in the documentary, like, I have this anxiety. My heart's bumping every day. And he was just saying, like, asking himself, why are you not happy? And for him, he had to be doing something to make himself feel happy. So that's why he went into music. And that's why he was seeking other things outside of basketball because he was emotionally damaged or hurt from that loss. And he didn't know how to, mm-hmm. how to bounce back from that. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, you know, I mean, some guys know how to take outside pressure and, and, and all the outside noise and all those stressors. And, you know, I think channel that energy into, you know, sort of their game you know, kind of leave it all out there on the floor and stuff like that. That's kind of what you ultimately want, you know, from your athletes. Obviously, you know, everybody's wired a little bit differently. And uh, with with Ron Artest, it seems like, you know, for him, you know, it was it was difficult to, to just kind of maintain that focus on basketball. Now, what's interesting about this team that, you know, he's he now has is he has a bunch of guys that around him now that are kind of a little bit more like him in the sense that, you know, they're, they're not afraid to speak their mind, you know, and say how they really feel. Mm-hmm. He referred to him and him and Jermaine O'Neal as having loose cannon mentalities. And Jermaine O'Neal was like, we're hard, we're hard dogs. Are we going to get you. Like that was their, their mentality. And I think yeah. Ron Artest right. took it to a whole nother level though. And he, he mentioned in the documentary, like, I just don't like people. And the only place he could trust people was on the basketball court, playing basketball with them. He could only trust his teammates on the court. Well, on the court, but I mean, there was, there were clearly a lot of issues. They, they, they did highlight, they didn't go into significant detail, but they did highlight some you know, clear off the court issues. They're, you know, kind of transpiring among the among the players particularly they highlighted uh Jermaine O'Neal and Ron Artest you know and I think you throw Steven Jackson in there and what what you're having is you have a bunch of you know tough personalities that I think are probably just kind of escalating you know the drama so now you have like kind of locker room stuff going on you know it's now translating it seems to what's happening on the court and uh it's a recipe for disaster i think when you have personalities let's say like a a reggie miller who you know he seems to be more of a diplomatic guy you know let's just like focus on basketball let's just keep the main thing the main thing like then i think you have a when you have a balance of forces between guys like you know reggie and different types of guys and i imagine rick carlisle in that position is to, is taking that similar yeah. stance i think his coaching style is in the similar vein of like a greg popovich where he's tr- he's trying probably to unite these people yeah yeah be able to try to have them find some sort of common ground amongst themselves outside of basketball but as we know that that didn't necessarily happen the most heart like 
frustrating part for me was, and you touched on it, was this disconnect between Reggie Miller, the veteran, who ended up being 2005, being his last season, telling these guys or trying to tell them, specifically Ron Artest, how these opportunities, because they were they were in the Final Four and they would have most likely won it all if they beat they were one game away from beating the Pistons, that these opportunities are rare to come by and we have to take advantage of it. You don't know how special of an opportunity we have with this team. We have an opportunity to win an NBA championship and and for him not to to feel like Ron Artest was engaged and committed to that or didn't know the sense, the gravity of it, it had to be extremely heartbreaking for him. Yeah. Cause there was, there were signs that off season before the brawl, the mouse of the palace happened that, that this season wasn't necessarily going to go well, despite having the pieces to mm-hmm. contend. Yeah. It, it, it was, it, it was sad for sure. It was disheartening to uh, you, you kind of could, could feel Reggie's Reggie's pain, you know, as he was uh, reflecting, you know, on all the events. Because you know, one thing he repeated multiple times was, like, he 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 realized that they were the most talented team. You know, they had the best team, um, and what they needed was the mental toughness, right? Even I think identified mental toughness as the one thing that prevented them from winning that Eastern Conference Finals the year before. Um, but he said that that was really what was needed. And, and, and the cohesion, that kind of comes right over the course of the season, going through things. You know, that, that still needed time, I think, to, to kind of mature, to nurture itself. Yeah. It sounds like there wasn't necessarily that brotherhood. So that was, um, that was kind of a crack in the foundation. And then you, like you mentioned before, you, you kind of have too many of those alpha type individuals, not only alpha type individuals, but individuals who, and by alpha, we mean dominant personalities, strong willed, kind of maybe overly determined and rigid at times, um, but also individuals with high levels of emotionality, individuals whose emotions can rise to levels that will get the best of them at times. And that can be, and unless you mix that in with, with more glue guys, more steady players, if we're touching on the, the disc assessment here, then you essentially have a recipe for implosion or disaster. I mean, it's, it's a balance of forces. It really is. It's a balance of forces. Um, and, you know, ultimately, yeah, sure. You, you probably, you probably want, your your leader you know your your number one player to be an alpha you know to be dominant uh so that his teammates you know will will want to follow right um will be compelled to follow but um you know beyond that you have to be very careful you have to be very very careful because i think you mentioned draymond green earlier that's that's a great example I mean, can you imagine two other Draymond Greens on that Golden State Warriors team, right? I mean, there's no, there's no way that could work. There's only one Draymond. Even uh, Draymond he couldn't even really make it work with someone like Kevin Durant. So you touched on something perfectly. I think the Draymond's a great comparison, although for the most part, uh, he seems to keep things a little bit more um, controlled, at least 
um, on the court. And he seems to be an individual who can, can kind of teeter the line, the fine line between using that emotion because he plays with high emotion to his benefit. He's one of the best players in the league or he's has been an all-star in the league because he plays with such passion. And that is the fuel for his mm-hmm. work ethic and his ability to, to be a great basketball player. Um, yeah. And, and, and you, you almost wonder to what extent basketball IQ you know, plays a role in that, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of that, that ability to, you know, to kind of toe that line, you know, walk that line, know where the line is, right. And stay contained, mm-hmm. you know, stay controlled. Yeah. That, that, cause you know, that's one thing about Draymond. We've talked about this before in other episodes that does separate him. Uh, in spite of maybe not being perhaps the most skilled player, right? He's had a very lengthy career, a Hall of Fame career, obviously multiple championships based primarily on his basketball IQ. I think that's probably his number one attribute along with his work ethic and then his selflessness. At the end of the day, he's not filling the box score, but he's a crucial player. He's he's been a crucial player for, for three championship teams and no for there's sure. other parallels we can talk about dennis Rodman. i think probably dennis Rodman is the closest comparison to ron artest because these are individuals that have also had some interesting times off the field and have caused their teams distractions with things that have gone on right in the off seasons right, right. Um, but right. once they get on the court you see that that all-star caliber ability um with both on our test and, and Dennis Rodman. Yeah. And, and, uh, Dennis Rodman, I think, um, I, you know, I like him as an example because like Draymond, he had the high basketball IQ. Therefore he could be a, a, a piece for a championship team, right? He could, he could be that guy because of that added ingredient, right? Where he did know how to tell the line. He knew how to get ahead of the other guys. He knew how to, t- to channel that energy for the benefit of his team, right? To the detriment of the, of the opponent. That's not necessarily what I saw, you know, so much with like, oftentimes, at least in this, in this particular situation, this team, Ron Artest uh, and Steven Jackson and, you know, Jermaine O'Neal, I saw a lot of times that their emotionality worked to the detriment of their team because you know somehow, some way, it just didn't totally fit with the team dynamics, the team chemistry. Whereas it was a perfect fit for the Bulls teams and Dennis Rodman, or the Warriors teams and Draymond Green. You know, and and there's just it's it's very interesting, right? Because um, it's a gift and a curse, right? You have to know as a as a coach, as a you know, as an organization, sort of how to manage that understanding that it seems to be actually a critical thing to have you want to have some of that energy for sure um but you have to Mm -hmm. know you know to what extent you know yeah and it brings up a good point it's maybe you probably don't want that type of player the more emotionally driven player that sometimes allows his emotions to get the best of him on and off the court to be one of your top two guys and because Rodman was was number three for the Bulls, um, third most impactful player, but obviously Pippen and to Pippen and Michael Jordan, who two of the top 
what 50 players of all time and then draymond of course has always been third or, or fourth of of the go-to guys the spotlight guys for the golden state warriors so this pacers team were on our test um because reggie miller was on his way out although he had more of the spotlight Re- reggie miller wasn't the reggie miller of his prime this is his last couple seasons in the league so Honor Test was the second best player on this team. And he he was asked to do a lot for this team. And it worked out well for the majority of one season. And then uh and then kind of shit hit the fan. Um, but he he mentioned too, and this was mentioned in the documentary that during like it was known that he saw a therapist. And they mentioned, I think they mentioned that he saw a therapist and Jermaine O'Neal. Yeah. He saw a psychiatrist. She, she came with us on the road. I don't know if we don't know if that was actually an actual psychiatrist or if it's a psychologist, PhD therapist. Yeah. Who knows what who it knows? could have been a life um, coach for all we know. <laughs> they probably just thought yeah. it was a psychiatrist, but, but he, he, he mentioned he struggled with depression, anxiety, like consistently. And he mentioned like the heart bumping every day, he felt restless and felt like he had to be doing something. And that's why he was doing things off mm-hmm. the basketball court. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, he was clearly struggling. Um, so, I mean, he had a team, but I mean, maybe there was kind of a disconnect in terms of, you know, what, what was really needed. But at the end of the day, yeah, it, 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 it was wild how this was pretty early in the season, right? This melee, right? This malice in the palace. This was, this was like early in the season um, before they before they really had a chance to, to do much of anything, but they were kind of the early season favorite. And why not? You know, like, like we talked about, they were representing the Eastern Conference uh, in that finals year before, gave the champion, eventual champion Detroit Pistons all they could handle. And they added a great piece in Steven Jackson. And, and you know, you're talking about Reggie Miller, you know, at this point, considered greatest shooter of all time, you know, right there with Ray Allen. I think he might have even had number one title at that point. And uh, you got um, Ron Artest, greatest defender in the league, in the, you know, around the perimeter in particular. Jermaine O'Neal was coming up. People, you, you kind of gloss over Jermaine O'Neal, but people didn't understand, like, he was the youngest guy, I think, ever to start in a basketball game, right? First of all, 17 years mm-hmm. old. At that time, came into yeah. league at seventeen years old. He would have fit in perfectly this day and age, and he played long into his career because he he had that that mid range jumper, and I think he ended up developing went further and further out with it as he got older. But he was drafted by the the uh, Portland Trailblazers, mm-hmm. and you know I guess he just didn't fit in their system. But he was a great pickup for the Pacers, and like we mentioned, the two of them between Reggie Miller and and Jermaine O'Neal inside outside threat. I mean, that was a serious formidable combination. When you paired that with Ron Artest and uh, Steven Jackson to, as they said in the, in the, throughout the documentary, two dogs, um, you know, hard nosed perimeter defenders, you, you, you sort of had like, I mean, that was a championship team, right? That was a championship team. Um, and uh, I think they all knew it. and what kind of sets the stage for this melee even further is that (laughs) Reggie Miller happened to be injured. Okay. Um, So he was out. So at this point along the way, I would say that for the Pacers, 
Jermaine O'Neal had probably become their primary scoring option. So he's probably the number one guy. Although, you know, for me, Reggie Miller, he was always going to be at no less than number two. For as long as he was playing on that team, he was going to be no less than the number two option. Now, Ryan Artest had probably surpassed him in terms of, you know, physicality and all of that. But Reggie Miller was still a great shooter and could still stretch the floor. Uh, and, and I still think that just because he was still the heart and soul of the team, you know, he was number two guy. So, you know, Ron Artest really was shielded by sort of Reggie Miller and Jermaine O'Neal. Like they were the ones that were really carrying the team, but for this game, because Reggie Miller was injured, that makes Ron Artest now have to carry the load. Of, of being the number two scoring mm-hmm. option alongside. Oh, yeah. And Jimmy this O'Neal. game was cir- circled on the schedule too. So everyone was fired up for this game. Right. So now you have a situation where going into this game, they move, you know, Steven Jackson in, you know, into the starting lineup as like, you know, basically the third scoring option. And, and so like these, those two, you know, meaning Steven Jackson and Ron Artest, they kind of get to ride it to, to rise and shine, you know, in this game, because they're the perimeter guys you know, Jermaine O'Neal is going to be the guy down the paint, you know, kind of banging around down there. But, you know, the guys that are handling the ball, right, that, you know, you know, really going to have the spotlight on are going to be those those two. Right. So these were kind of all the things that were happening in the background leading up to, uh, you know, to this thing. Yeah. So the Pacers ended up coming out and just pretty much blowing the doors off of them. Um, Ron Artest had, was the leading scorer in the game and things got at Towards the end, if you watch the documentary or if you saw it live, um, I don't know why the Pacers players were still in the game at the end, but or Ron Artest was in the game still. Yes, yeah, so it was like maybe two minutes and 14 seconds left somewhere mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, and, and I imagine like, so this all plays into it and they talk about it. Obviously, the Pacers are winning in a blowout, so a lot of the fans in the lower bowl in the stadium have gone home and the, the people from the upper decks who are there and maybe a little bit more rowdy have now moved a little closer to the court and are booing and, and all these different things. But the Pacers have won, won handily within the last minute of the game. And, and what, what do you remember what, what the score was? The score ended up, the Pacers ended up being winning 97 to 82. Okay. So, yeah, so. and, and the game was called 45.9 seconds early because that's when the brawl happened. And it started when Ron Artest, when Jamal Tinsley actually told him, Hey, it's time to get your foul, which I don't know why he would have, would have done that to him. And they mentioned like, Oh, why would you ever tell Ron that? Because he's, he's very uh, impressionable, but he went and fouled, uh, just so happened to foul the biggest player, probably the biggest, strongest looking player in the NBA at that time, Ben Wallace. Um, pr- don't tell sure Shaq was, that, but yeah. yeah. Pretty sure he was probably the re- reigning defensive player of the year. Um, and Ben Wallace didn't take kindly to it. So he, he shoved him back and it kind of your classic run of the mill um, scuffle between teams at that point takes a little while to, to cool down. And then uh, during the, the scuffle, as things get separated out, Ron Artest mentions that, Hey, I'm gonna, I learned something in therapy. I, when I get heated, I'm going to take five. I'm going to take a timeout and take five. That's what he said. So that's what he did. He went and laid down on the scores table in retrospect, not probably, maybe not the best idea. And he said he was counting in his head to five to try to cool down. Now when we say laid down. We've got to be very clear. He, he literally laid flat on his back when he was going to sleep. 
you know, arms and legs outstretched, just laid like laid out across the scorer's table. It was very dramatic because we have to also like set the stage for those who haven't seen this. You can imagine he's just been pushed violently by uh, um, Ben Wallace, who's a big dude. And it was it was a very like, you know, aggressive, like, hey, let's go, which resulted in both teams just sort of all like kind of going at it. So you just have a, a, a just a huge just no sort punches of thrown, no punches, but a lot of pushing and shoving. But like a, at least 20 players just in a in a, in a large gathering mm-hmm. of you know, pushing and shoving. Um, yeah, so the emotional thermometer sort of like a, a scrum, a mm-hmm. scrum that leads basically uh, pushing and shoving Ron Artest to the score table, like off the court. And then he's like laying down as like guys continue to push and shove. And then, oh, by the way, Ben Wallace is actively trying to get to Ron Artest is being restrained and all the while throwing mm-hmm. his headbands and his wristbands yeah. at Ron Artest. Yeah. So this is where the, the emotion thermometer, the heat rises within the players and in the arena, right? Because the fans are going to react to how the players are, are reacting, how their team is reacting. They're going to have their teams back at the end of the day. So this is when Ron talks about how Ron Artest talks about how he, he used a skill that he learned in therapy, which is very common to try to, once you recognize that your emotions are getting the best of you to try to really take a time out. And sometimes you'll use acronyms and different things like STOP, which stands for S for stop. T stands for take a step back. O stands for observe your emotions. And P stands for proceed mindfully. That's just a DBT skill. But anyways, he was taking a time out, observing the fact that his emotions were getting the best of him. And he was like, okay, what can I do? to proceed mindfully. And for for him, it was, oh, let me do the countdown from zero to 10, or let me count to five and take some deep breaths and lay back on this scorer's table. Good old moment of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Good old reset to turn the volume down on that emotions thermometer so he can then be, uh, have full control over his his brain at that point. Because when your emotions are running amok, your amygdala is firing left and right, your limbic system, you don't, you are not in complete control. And that's when bad things happen mm-hmm. that's yeah. that's what happens with someone that's, who that's when good times go bad yes exactly so fits of rage um yeah. <laughs> you've heard that before or someone who gets intoxicated that shuts down the frontal lobe so you're acting more off emotions and bad things happen we all know about um alcohol and then the risks of, of things that happen when someone's under the influence so these are Ron Artest at this point is doing something to try to turn the volume down of his emotions and control things better. Unfortunately, as he's lying there, a beer comes flying down and hits him directly in the face. And from that point, he is a direct hit. Yeah. Maybe his suck my battleship during the, from a scale to zero, 100, the motions probably during the uh, initial scuffle with Ben Wallace, maybe went to like- Shout out to the boomers. An 80, and then he got it, when he laid back, it might've went down to like a 50, but when the cup hit him, it's it's at a hundred. And once you're at a hundred, you can't control anything. No. And he's boom, off into the stands, running up 20, 30 rows. And- Yeah, you're right, man, he was at a hundred. That's the only way that you can make sense of that. Like nothing was going to stop him. And here's the thing. 
if any of us get to a hundred, there's nothing anyone can do now. Not all of us are going to have the the physical capabilities or aggression to, to have a reaction like that. But if any of us, our emotions get to a peak of 100, we're not going to make a good decision regardless of what we're doing. You know, one thing I'm not sure Ron or Tess could fully appreciate in that moment. Um, and, and you could really only appreciate it just from having seen it on recorded video, right? But I'm sure live, it was probably even more compelling, but to, to like watch that man run through the, the, the stands there, it was such a spectacle. I don't think he could fully appreciate that no matter what was thrown at him. Like it could have been literally a grenade. Like there's just something about a person that size and just, you know, like interacting among us, like just common folk and, and just seeing that. And he looked like a, like it says, it was like something of X-Men, you know, like a mutant because he is so much bigger. And it's not, it's funny with professional athletes like that, like football players, basketball players, like these high, high level athletes, like it's not just the height. Okay. It's not just that it's like all of the body proportions are just bigger and more massive than, you know, average people. And so he's like running and just plowing his way and he's super athletic too. So he's doing things, jumping around, leaping, you know, in ways that you just don't see right in like the real world. So think about it. He is no, everybody's going to understand. He's not on the court. He is in the stand. So like we never see players in the stands. We just never see it. Right. So this is like a spectacle because it's like a whole different, perspective you never it's just you it's not even real mm -hmm. right because that, that line never gets blurred it rarely gets blurred. no he's in the public and so what's interesting is we usually see basketball players or football players are our favorite athletes around other athletes right so our perspective of them is that they're not necessarily normal size we realize they're bigger people but i don't think we can fully appreciate the difference right until we see them alone among a whole group of regular people right and now it's like holy shit you know i mean what the i mean he's humongous guy you know just like and he's he's like literally leaping through the stands he gets to like you know whatever that seventh or eighth row however you know it was pretty far distance that he traveled um it, it, he gets to that like you know, whatever that eighth or ninth row, like whatever distance he traveled so quickly, right? It was like amazing to watch. Yeah, nobody could thinking, react and stop him. No, 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 no. Like it, it happened so fast. And like, I'm thinking to myself, of course, like most people I think would be when you're in that moment, like imagining myself as him. And I'm saying to myself, there's no way I could have done what he did just the leaping and then you know just mm -hmm. he was he basically flew through the air got to this guy and just started wailing on him and maybe you say to yourself it was self-defense and maybe for a normal person that would be what you would look at it like but with this guy you can't see it that way when you review the tape yeah. it could, 
it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's, it's a prime example of emotions at 100. It's, it's fight or flight. Should have mentioned this before. Like it's fight, flight, or freeze when your emotions hit that high, uh, or it's, it's have a, a panic attack. And, and for him, it was fight flighting up the stairs and fighting. And like we mentioned before, alcohol also has that same effect where it makes you more susceptible to your emotions. So at this game, fans been there three plus hours maybe and they start jumping in and other people come and start fighting and steven jackson within like probably 10 five seconds he's up there he's not he's not too far behind ron Artest. i'll tell you that right now and he talks about in the documentary how he's like hey i got my my buddy's back and it for him it sounds like he made a rational decision that's just true to his core value like he, he's going to protect his brothers. So he ran up there and he got into it. And from there it's, we got two pacers fighting in the stands and then we got fans coming down onto the court. And like you mentioned before, the, the video, this is the, the funniest part to me. You have these two Pistons fans come down the court. I think it was actually maybe later when Ron was back down to confront Ron Artest and they're posturing, gripping their fists. And you can see this dude's like half the size is Ron Artest. And you can kind of see it in his eyes like, oh, I made a really bad mistake as Ron socks him in the face. And then Jermaine O'Neal comes sliding in and thankfully, I guess, slips and then knocks another guy out. Yeah, it looked like some sort of kung, kung fu maneuver. Yeah. And it's you know, like, like a, a flying punch. And they actually had one um, of the fans, <laughs> they interviewed one of the fans and, and, God bless this guy. He's just digging in his heels, talking about how. Uh, no, it was the fan. He was trying to say, I was trying to leave the stadium, and it just so happened I went onto the court on accident. Oh, yeah. He said, Yeah. It was like, Yeah. Yeah. As I was exiting, yeah. I somehow found myself the guy that's trying magically to press charges. And it's like, even though there's video evidence to prove absolutely everything you're saying is a lie, you are sticking to your guns. And I guess that's admirable, but. No, well, we don't have to talk about that anymore. But I think this is the same dude that got like carted off in like the neck brace yeah. in the ambulance. Yeah. You know, like EMS. They took him off. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, he he definitely, I guess, was the first victim of you know fan entry onto the court. I, I you know, I he was clear. He but he admitted, you know, he was he was wasted. Yeah. You know? you're not thinking rationally in that situation and that's what that that's what this is all about but you must have thought you're looking at a video game yeah. or something but that's like yeah. yeah and that's why you need to have buffers there needed to be more security and police officers just to give to have a barrier so there's a that much more time five a couple maybe it would have took Ron Artest 30 more seconds to, to fight through a couple of security guards. And maybe he would have thought, okay, this isn't, isn't such a good idea. Let me turn back around. And the fans obviously wouldn't have been able to get on the court as easily if there was security there. So. Yeah. I think this might've been like around the time GTA, you know, grand, the grand theft auto really, you know, started <laughs> popping off. And I think you could just go up people to people just took that shit way too seriously, man. But no, I mean, it, it was just, it was a, an absolute spectacle. I, this, this, you know, this is one of these things um, as a player, professional athlete, like you, man, it sucks. I feel for these guys because I know how I would feel if I were in these situations and, you know, people calling me names and, you know, and, and saying all kinds of like, you know, crazy things. And, and then of course throwing things. I mean, 
you want to you want to you want to react i mean that's the natural instinct but you know the the contracts you know are you know pretty significant right um a lot of money yeah uh, a lot at stake uh in terms of you know endorsements and you know fan base you know and popularity and all these different dynamics and uh i know there's a lot of different aspects of the contract that would you know put you in jeopardy you know if, if you were to respond and and use force but if the, that's the thing if when the emotions hit a certain level all that thinking about oh i i make so much money like if I have an altercation with the fan, I have a lot more to lose than the fan does. That goes out the window. You're not thinking clearly. Your judgment's clouded. Yeah. And I want to touch on one more thing kind of in that same vein is this, this thought of mob mentality. And, and they mentioned this in the documentary, like Ben Wallace is throwing his, his headbands and sweatbands through multiple sweatbands and headbands that run our test, obviously not as damaging as a beer cup, but that it was obviously a, a trigger to individuals and the fans to say, Oh, it's all right to do that. Like he, the players are doing that. And I want to, I want to, I want to protect them and, and do like them. And it's kind of that mob mentality where your emotions take over and you're just doing something because someone else that, that is on your team or on your side is doing. So I'm going to do it as well, but this time I'm going to do it with a beer and it's going to be a lot more damaging and I just happen to hit the person right in the directly in the face. So, and then from there, mob mentality takes over because all the the pistons fans are trying to attack the pacers players when in reality they they don't know these players from the 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 their fellow fans most likely that are in the stadium unless all like ten thousand fans somehow knew each other uh but they root against them and they so the lines became blurred there and it, it was funny seeing like the ending to it reggie miller it was there suited like in his suit with his fingers bandaged up and he was, he was the peacemaker. He was trying, he was the one trying to get Ron Artest off the court and Ron Artest settled down amongst other coaching staff. And you could see police officers coming up to, to threaten, like they're going to mace or pepper spray Ron Artest. And Reggie's like, what are you doing? Like, that's ridiculous. Like, let me just calm him down. And like, Reg well, it is, it, it, it is, it is ridiculous when you think about it, like, you know, just from a distance, you know, in a vacuum, but again, it's the spectacle, you know, uh, even though he was like the initial victim, you know, I guess, you know, if you, if you want to consider it that, um, it, it was just, you know, cause I, I, I they even played some of the nine one one calls, radio calls mm -hmm. made by fans, um, who had, you know, been there in the stadium or been there in, in the, uh, you know, in the arena and like, we're like, I guess, you know, trying to get out and like, they were so scared of what was happening that they were contacting 911 to say, Hey, come get police here. They weren't just calling for an ambulance to help, you know, somebody that may have been injured or, or whatever. Um, they, they wanted the police, you know, like, they were like, and they were like frantic. They were like, oh my God, like, we don't know what's going to happen. And the precipitating event, truly, yes, it was the beer camp, but it wasn't really the beer. I mean, it was the, the Ron Artest, a player going into the stands and, you know, striking, 
right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it wasn't one single thing. You can't put the blame. It was like a culmination of events that just slowly ticked the emotional heat and thermometer up a notch and notch until it got to a point where everyone was running off emotions. And, and at that point, you're not you're not in control. And s- slowly, they were able to usher individuals off the court. Um, and as they were getting ushered off, a chair was thrown at Jermaine O'Neal popcorn soda beer continues to be dumped on everyone and and you have like run or test like two or three guys like covering his face and he's like distraught and looking like he's having some sort of like out-of-body experience as he's going off the court because it's kind of disturbing and then jermaine o'neal is is obviously having multiple people he had a chair thrown out him and he's wanting to get back out there and, and 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 fend for himself it's fight or flight for this guy and then stephen jackson i found somewhat amusing that he's kind of like holding up his hands and like saying bring it on to these individuals kind of seemingly like he's been there and done kind of something like that before um kind of reveling in it but they talked about when they got back to the locker room everyone's trying to cool down and and ron artest kind of in ron artest fashion is like do you think we're going to get in trouble and there ended up being another altercation between him and jermaine o'neill because Jermaine did not take to that kindly. And I mean, emotions are still high at that point. So it makes sense that there was ongoing physical altercation. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you remember hearing in the aftermath, um, interestingly, like Jermaine O'Neal, you know, his career, you know, really uh, never recovered. Um, and well, I don't know about like his, his image took a hit unfairly but he, he was still a baller he still made a several all-star teams he got, he's the only one that got his his um suspension reduced because he, he didn't actually go out in the stands he stayed on the court people came to him right and he had no repercussions when it came to, to the legal but if you think about the trajectory he was you know positioning himself as like the heir apparent right to reggie miller um, and, you know, I think one of the things that he even said himself was that, you know, he really did, uh, as you said, his image took a hit, you know, in, which would include like endorsements and things like that, which does affect your notoriety. Um, I do personally remember there being kind of a scarlet letter kind of thing, uh, attached to that organization for a couple of years and definitely the guys that were involved, I think that that reputation followed them, followed them. And while I think Ron Artest was the kind of guy that, you know, could kind of process that, move on, reshape his image, which he did with the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, and, and still kind of be a force. Jermaine O'Neal, it seemed like you could say he kind of plateaued early, you know, that that's probably the way I would, uh, reconcile what happened with his career, but you, you, you know, it's sort of like a what could have been story, really, because he was right in his, you know, fourth, fifth year in the league, like he was entering his prime and he was entering his prime, inheriting a you know, great franchise in Indiana, um, you know, following a legendary player in Reggie Miller. And I think he had an opportunity to be a really special guy, you know, in the league where he kind of plateaued yeah you're right i'm looking just looking back he he ended up not just a year before that he won nba defensive player of the year himself was an all-star 
but ever since then he he didn't make an all-star team after that and oh okay. subsequently yeah. battled with injuries and then ended up uh leaving the pacers after the 2006 2007 season and, and bounced around from rappers heat celtics suns and warriors ever since then and he i mean he had a serviceable long nba career but you're right he was trending upwards to be a, a an mvp on a championship caliber yeah like yeah a finals I mean, he, MVP yeah. type guy so this is yeah. something in that conversation that that is is probably the i don't want to use the word sad because it's not sad like i like but it, it's maybe the unjust aspect of this where he never had that ability to play on a championship team and he was wasn't the the catalyst to this this malice at the palace the catalyst if you wanted to put it on one pacers player would be ron artest and ron artest was able to like you mentioned redeem redeem himself and win a a championship with the lakers and hit one of the the most clutch shots in the history of the, the nba finals um when uh, Kobe Bryant passed the ball to him. Um, and, and he talked about this. He, he mentioned that he, after the incident, obviously he was suspended for the whole entire season. And he, he asked to be traded after that season. And they, Stephen Jackson, Jermaine O'Neal were pissed. And specifically Jermaine O'Neal was like, felt betrayed, thought he was a coward for this because now all of a sudden you're, you arguably are the person that caused this and you're kind of, you're out. You're saying, I don't want to go back to this. And Ron Artest was saying that he obviously mentioned he had anxiety. So one of the biggest ways to cope with anxiety is to avoid anything that causes anxiety. So of course you're going to avoid going, putting that Pacers uniform on because that's an anxiety provoking. And that's kind of his, that was his MO at the time. And he even said that in order for him to move on, he had to de- emotionally detach from the NBA. He had to become more balanced, and that's what—that's why he, he he had to leave. That's why he one of the reasons why he changed his name to Meta World Peace. And then, like through therapy, he learned that he wanted to be quote unquote be more loving, be be loving, be kindness, connect to people better, and be a better person. Those were his words. Um, the reasons why he wanted to change his name to Meta World Peace. But he, in order for him to do this, he had to emotionally disconnect from, from the NBA because when he did emotionally connect to it, he either lost in the Eastern Conference Finals because he had a cheap flagrant foul in Rip Hamilton or he, the following season, got sus- suspended and along with several of his teammates suspended for the for, for a majority of the season. So, <clears throat> you know, and you could you could look at, you know, Jermaine O'Neal and Steven Jackson and even, you know, by extension, Reggie Miller as casualties of, uh, you know, this uh, Ron Artest, you know, sort of story and, and, and you know, tragedy, you know, tra- tragedy to triumph, you know, I guess if you want to call it that. However, there is more to the story. I mean, there's definitely a backstory here in terms of how we even got to this point, because even though, you know, we know that Ron Artest is a flawed player um, and in early in his career, you know, had a lot of different personal melees and, you know, it affected his team in a variety of ways leading, leading up to, to the malice in the palace. You know, the backstory here is that this team, as with any professional team, 
was assembled by a group of architects, right? A group of men uh, in suits, not in uniform, you know, uh, guys that either by virtue of ownership or by virtue of uh, corporate sponsorship or, you know, by virtue of, you know, position, you know, job title within the organization are responsible for, you know, making these decisions, you know, in terms of who's putting this, this group together. And I remember very clearly, so we didn't hear from the coach of the Pacers uh, at all um, throughout this documentary. I mean, it was like very few little snippets, but we did hear from uh, the president of basketball operations for the organization, Donnie Walsh, and, you know, on this topic. And um, from what I could uh, determine, because we didn't, like I guess, hear from the coach, it sounded like it was really kind of came down to an insatiable desire to win, right? Just insatiable desire to win a championship, um, kind of win at all costs. They recognized that they were sort of on the tail end of and final stages of Reggie Miller's career. Mm-hmm. And it was like sort of like a win now mentality. Yeah. You know? And and for what it's worth, they did a hell of a job from getting, I, I believe it was around 2000 and being in the finals was Reggie Miller. And then, or was this four or five years later being in, in contention again with a largely new supporting cast or Reggie Miller transitioning to the supporting cast since getting Jermaine O'Neal and Ron Artest. So, and it, the pieces were there, but the, the chemistry, the gel, something was missing. And, and whether that was a fault of the coach, a younger Rick Carlisle, um, who obviously we know was able to, to put together, to do a hell of a coaching job with one of the uh, less talented NBA championship teams of all time. The Mavericks, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, or it was just a matter of not necessarily having a right mix of, of personalities on the team, but, I mentioned before, like the redemption, I think for with Ron Artest winning a championship with the Lakers, I think that's secondary to me for him. There, they showed an interview of him after he won. And I didn't realize this. He, in the interview, he said, he, I feel, he, I feel like a coward. He said, he talked about in reference to being on the Pacers that he bailed out his teammates. He bailed, he bailed out as a teammate to Jermaine O'Neal and Steven Jackson and Reggie Miller. And he taught, he's, he talked, openly about how he, he believes Reggie Miller is one of the, was one of the greatest players of his, of his time and how he deserved a championship. And, and he feels at fault and, and bad. And he used the word, he feels like a coward because he left him high and dry. And so I think that realization, that self-awareness, that's the redemption for me. That's for him being able to kind of admit that and, and come to that and, and try to be more loving and more kind and try to be a better person. That's the redemption for me, less so than. Absolutely, man. Um, but there's a reason why it coincided. There's a reason why he was able to fit in on that Lakers team and, yeah. and hit that game. No, he shot. went on a personal um, wellness journey, right? Using mental fitness, you know, obviously he had already started kind of applying some of those things. I was not well enough. <laughs> Um, you know, in, in the, at the, the mouse at the palace. Well, these practices are, you, you start with the practices, right? Like the take five, take deep breaths, and then you put all the practices together and then you, you, you become to embody it. Yeah. It's not just something that you, all right, I have my practice. I do. 
Right. It's something that I, he, I he was he was in the very early stages. Yeah. Uh, at, at the malice, the palace, right? But by the time he hit that game winner for the for the Lakers, he was well within his groove. He, he experienced, you know. He, yep, he he had tasted resilience, right? And yep. um, so he was able to put that all to good use. And unfortunately, you know, some of the others didn't necessarily, you know, save the course, you know. But it, it's interesting because wellness can be a you know a personal journey as you know we see with ron artest story meta world peace now um it can also be more of a community meta yes. sandiford artest wow. there you go is his name now um but it can also be a community experience right and community would include team right uh and 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 as a a team experience I think that you know part of having good team chemistry, right, is uh, is having a team that you know really is is well put together in terms of you know those the balance of forces that we talked about, um, yeah. you know, and having like you know your 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 number one guy that 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 play, that person that player has to be in alpha in some respect, you know, and we've talked about, you know, the different types of alpha personalities, they don't always have to be dominant, right, in, in terms of, you know, how we view the personality profiles according to the disc assessment. No, they don't always have to be dominant. Um, you know, they can be a little more like a Steph Curry, right, who is probably more of a steady leader, very conscientious and steady uh, in his approach to the game. Um, but certainly if he were an alpha that was also dominant, he would likely clash with a, a co-star like, like a Draymond Green, right? Who's more of the, you know, that heart and soul of the team. You know, we talked about him earlier in the podcast as being a player similar to, you know, a run artist, similar to Steve Jackson, you know, guys that really can kind of get at it, you know, and and all that, but more controlled, right? With, with the higher basketball IQ. But nevertheless, the right chemistry, right balance of forces is a non-dominant alpha, right? In Steph Curry, paired with, right? A dominant co-star. That can work, okay? That type of chemistry can work. We've seen it work with the, you know, with the Warriors where, you know, Steph, defers to Draymond a lot of a lot of ways, right? You know, he'll go off the ball, he'll let Draymond kind of take over, you know, and, and mix it up. There's no ego there. Kobe, on the other mm -hmm. hand, would never go for that. <laughs> it would just never happen. Um, yeah. You know, so you, you kind of have to know what you're putting together. You have to know what you have. Yeah, you do. You do. And I think that makes it easier, right, to, to, to know the pieces and match the pieces up together. But I, I think we can go beyond that and say that at the end of the day, being a coach, being a part of a staff, part of the creation of a team, a manager of a team, if you will, uh, the therapist mm -hmm. of a team, you have to create some sort of bond, some sort of connection that is deeper than just the connection on the court. Um, it has to be deeper than that for me. And I, I've this kind of dates back to, to Phil Jackson and his philosophies of, and Greg Popovich and the things he does. They always try to give opportunity for the players to bond 
in something other than basketball, whether that's Greg Popovich having everyone watch a documentary about Martin Luther King Jr. and then speaking about it afterwards, or Phil Jackson having everyone do 20 minutes of meditation before practice or, or yoga after practice or doing a gratitude exercise after the end of the season. These are high-level coaches, highly successful coaches with all different types of personalities and players and alphas and betas and omegas and dominant people, and, and they've won championships after championships because of that, because of the ability to, uh, to create these bonds with their players where the, the players are going to, to have each other's backs on and off the court, and therefore it's so much easier to get these individuals to align for a common goal, for a championship. And it's, it go, it's beyond a championship. They want not only themselves to succeed, but they want their teammates to succeed. They want the team to succeed. Um, I think that creating connectedness is the most important thing, regardless of the, the personality type of the individual. And this is even more important for individuals. And this is separate from what we've talked about before, although it can be related for individuals who have suffered inconsistent relationships in their life, traumas in their life, neglect in their life. Um, individuals who've faced issues with systemic racism or police brutality or anything that has negatively impacted their ability to feel safe and feel connected and attached. So that it's even more important. And there's a lot of these individuals in the NBA. I've talked to Dr. Parham, um, who's located here at Loyola Marymount University, the director of the NBA Players Association Mental Health Initiative, who calls them invisible tattoos. A lot of these players in the NBA in different sports have had traumas as, as, as kids, and this still impacts them to this day. And one of the main ways it impacts these individuals is oftentimes it's, it's, they're just, they have issues with trust. They don't trust a lot of people. They don't, and it's difficult to connect with others. And therefore you're a little bit more on edge most of the time. So therefore you're more likely for your emotions, like we talked about to go higher. And, and to reach that threshold where you ne can't necessarily then control your actions. So this is something that I think connectedness, being able to create an environment where this, where an individual feels connected to someone, feels safe so they can be vulnerable. And when they can be vulnerable, that's when they can feel safe and loved. And, and from there there's growth and there's security and there's confidence mm -hmm. that I can feel a negative emotion without necessarily reacting on it because these guys got my back. Yeah. I have my locker room and my safe haven, my coach, my teammates, my family, what have you. So I think creating a culture of connectedness, that's, that's the number one thing for me to be able to create a, a championship team. Indeed. Yeah. And then this is sort of a, you know, I think a, a, a great way to, you know, kind of bring this all home, you know, talking about connectedness and, you know, I don't want our our uh, our viewers and and listeners to 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 just gloss over that term connectedness because there's a lot there's a lot there, um, and you know mental fitness you know the the practice of um, you know developing wellness you know and and you know, performing at our best you know peak performance all that great stuff you know it's it's really something that uh is a great way to not just establish personal like, like great personal health um and wellness but it's also a great way to connect um and 
you know, I say that because when you talk about connectedness, you're talking about on one hand, mindfulness, right? Activities that are going to increase our self-awareness, but then also increase our situational awareness, right? And then on the other, other hand, you're talking about gratitude practices, okay? So these are our activities that activities are going to increase my appreciation for what I have and, and you know, who I am um, and my identity, you know, appreciation and acceptance of that. Um, and then also appreciation and acceptance for, for others, right. And, and for all the things that are going on around me and, and, you know, in this case, my teammates, you know, the, the situation that, you know, we have before us, you know, us, you know, playing in a, in a championship game or playing in a high level game, like, you know, understanding the significance and all of those things and connectedness is a term that I love because when I think connectedness, I think of something beyond just awareness, right? Beyond just knowledge. I think understanding, right? I think understanding. I think when you have understanding, that's a different level. It's a higher level, a deeper level, deeper, more substantive level of engagement with another person, with a team, right? You can know each other, right? But to understand each other is a deeper level, okay? It's a deeper level of commitment to that relationship. And the difference, right, is, is, is you know, going from knowledge to understanding is about connectedness and the ways that, that you relate to one another, not just on the court or on the field, but also off the field, right? Outside of just, you know, the routine, Kind of practice and and you know kind of feel to play when you can get there right you can start developing bonds and connections um and in, in, in all aspects that's when you can develop uh understanding and i think that's when you can really have true team chemistry yeah yeah i think at the end of the day as an individual we're talking about being able to become mentally fit or resilient, being able to pretty much tackle any challenge that's in, in front of you. We, or we can weave this kind of complicated web, but it, it is pretty simple for the most part. And it, it starts with all those things you diff, you said, and I'm just trying to try to sum it up. In order to have this kind of better understanding, you, we must kind of accept others. And when you accept others, those people will accept you. And then from that, you begin to, build this confidence inside yourself and you begin to accept yourself. And then that puts you at a solid position to be able to be resilient and overcome any challenge that that's thrown your way. So head to the website. We have more, if you would like to know more about this mental fitness plan, we're, we're obviously putting out the a mental fitness program, multiple di different programs for different ages. And it has a lot of this, what we've talked about, Pretty much everything what we talked about is kind of boiled down in, in this programming. I'm excited about it, but uh, this was it was fun to, to talk about this. I, I I was living in Indiana, Indianapolis at the time during this, or West Lafayette, Indiana, hour north of Indianapolis. So this the Malice at the Palace Pacers team was one of my favorite teams at the time. So I even had her on our test jersey because 
I don't know. He was the heart and soul of that team. And I was, it was attractive for me as a, as a, like a 17 year old kid watching, watching the Pacers. And like, did that go in the, did that go in the fireplace after, after the, after the malice? No, it did not, no that's, I'm not a histrionic individual like that, but, <laughs> but yeah, as a kid, not from Indiana, moved there at 10 years old, you know, and if anyone who's lived in Indiana for a, right. a brief period of time knows how much basketball means there. And it was infectious. And I really, I love watching rooting for the Indiana Hoosiers. Like I'm sure you guys know. And then the, the Pacers during that time, but even till this day, I still root for the Pacers. Um, and that was, that was my team at that point. Um, along with the Suns. that's my, that's my other team. I have multiple teams, but, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan through and through. And it, so it was, it was difficult. It was devastating at the time, but um, I'm glad that it seems like every, all these individuals that were part of that are, are, are doing great. Hey, well, the Pacers are well. a resilient organization. You know, they, they, they bounce there, back there, from there, that. I, are they the best NBA franchise that's never won a title? Ooh, they have to wow. be, I would imagine. That, that's a, uh, that's good. I mean, yeah, possibly because the, or the Phoenix the, Suns, I guess the Knicks, you could say should probably have won a championship. Or they did win championship, didn't they? One time. Yeah, Phil Jackson. Once, right? Two. two. Back in the 70s. Phil Jackson won two with uh, the God. So, New York Knicks. So I guess, uh, you know, you, I have to think about that. Because the Suns, if you think about it, they probably should have won with, with Steve Nash when Robert Ory checked him into the scorer's table and Boris Diel and Amari Stoudemire took like two steps off the – the sidelines and were suspended for game six. Absolutely. No, you're right. And it's funny. If you ever want to like think about like the, 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 the teams, the organizations that fall into the, what could have been category, go back in history to the dynasties, right? Cause the dynasties are usually going to be the eras in which like there were these, like, yeah. you know, yeah, like you, the bulls, the oh, bulls yeah. had in the nineties had many. Yeah. Casual Charles teams. Barkley, KJ, Dan Marley right. for the Suns, and then Sean Kemp, uh, Gary Payton for the, the Supersonics, and Carl Malone. And, the Sonics. Uh, the yeah. Utah Jazz. It, 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 he took that two, he took a two-year siesta, so the Houston Rockets, Kimo Lajuan was able to get a couple, so that's good. Has it had the Jazz one championship? That's a good question. I imagine maybe. If, if they haven't, then they would have to be on yeah. that list, too. Well, let's just exactly. put, go ahead and put them on the list um but yeah well this has been has a good conversation been. though been. man it's been a good primer i think in our next conversation we'll we'll, we'll talk about football because it's almost that time and then before we know it nba is going to be back and college basketball and we still have to do that ufc podcast but yeah man I, 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 indeed so much so much yeah. to talk about i appreciate so much going you on. having the conversation with me absolutely man and hey let's end the stigma and continue the conversation <laughs>